Good morning, everybody. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. We're going to dive right in. It's been a long journey. The cool thing about preaching on who God is, we haven't even scratched the surface. But we're going to wrap it up and we're going to begin to move and transition into the fall. This past Monday, my wife asked me to take a step of faith and go to Costco on a Monday afternoon to grab paper towel, cheese, and watermelon. You can deduce whatever you want to out of my grocery list, okay? But uh, I went there about 4 o'clock in the afternoon on my way home. I, I, I grabbed some items. I threw them in a grocery cart. I moved to the front, of the, chur- or the front of the building as I was praying that bitterness would not overtake me as I stood in line with 7,243 other people who were trying to exit the building at exactly the same time. I'm standing there, kind of walking through my brain why I'm... I was sinning, Okay. Because I was frustrated and angry about all the people that were there that just happened to be there at exactly the same time as I was. And then I was rattled from my thoughts when a guy in a red vest came, kind of shook the front of my grocery cart and said, excuse me, sir, could you back up like about a foot and a half? I kind of looked around like, okay, sure, you got a red vest on. Okay, I'll back up about a foot and a half. A minute later, he comes and rattles my cart one more time and says, excuse me, sir, could you like move like to the left, like, like about 18 inches or so? Okay, so I move my cart over. I'm looking around going, I'm not in anybody's way. This is kind of weird. A minute later, he comes, shakes my cart again. He goes, excuse me, sir, like, could, you, could you move to the right, like just a couple of feet? At this point, I'm just ticked, right? I'm like, you're in my space. You're making me do stuff and all that. And I could tell, he could tell by the look on my face. I basically asked him without saying anything, what's the deal? And he kind of smiled at me and shook his, shook his shoulders and just kind of said, you know, uh, Actually, like, it it really wasn't that big of a deal. I was just playing. I just wanted to see how many times I could make you move. (laughs) Wanted to burn his red vest and exile him to Canada. I mean, that's what I was thinking in that moment. But what happened inside of me happens to all of us, right? There's something inside of all of us that pushes back when somebody starts making demands of us. As soon as that happens, we start asking questions. Who are you? What authority do you have? Why are you demanding anything of me? Why should I? Will you try and make me? How did you get your red vest? Those are the questions that are going through my mind. All godly questions, of course. Now, that's what happens when a human being presses back against us. My question this morning is, what happens when God begins making demands of his children. I want to know, do we ask the same kind of questions under our breath when God says, this is the way I want it done? Are we the people that go, who are you? Why are you trying to tell me what to do? This is my life. Basically, it's a defiant little child saying, why should I? I'm basically preaching this weekend on a dare. Because I thought last weekend we wrapped up the series, you know, I was getting ready to transition, going to kind of do a standalone message. But I've been in the comments last week, and a guy comes up to me and says, Grant, you know, I'm kind of disappointed that you didn't have the courage to tackle the suggestion that I made about the God is series. Oh, really? So what was your suggestion? He goes, my suggestion was God is demanding. I'm like, game on. I mean, if we're going to make it into a contest, let's talk about it. The truth is, Scripture tells us God is demanding, and what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if someone asked me the question today, is God demanding, my answer would be absolutely yes. And I would answer that because Solomon, the wisest man in human history, said exactly the same thing at the end of his book, the book of wisdom known as Ecclesiastes. He said these words, now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. 
For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So yes, absolutely, unequivocally, unreservedly, without question, God is demanding. And when you consider some of the demands that God makes of his children, we have a challenge in front of us. We have to consider whether or not as followers of God, we're actually going to comply with the demands that God makes or are we going to instead channel our inner two-year-old and quietly question the God with the big red vest and say under our breath, you are not the boss of me. You know, when you look at God's demands in Scripture, they are not for the faint-hearted. Let me just share a couple of them with you. In Genesis 22, God demands a son, a life, as a sacrifice. God comes to Abraham, tests him by seeing whether or not Abraham will trust him with the life of his son, Isaac. The Bible tells us it's a test. Abraham and Isaac don't know that. God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son up to the top of a mountain. I want you to tie him up, put him on an altar, and sacrifice him to me. I'll say it again. We know it's a test. Abraham and Isaac do not know it's a test. Can you imagine being that father on the top of a mountain with a drawn knife, touching your son's hair, looking into his eyes? I guarantee you, Abraham was asking the question, what kind of a God would demand this? Now, as a New Testament Christian, I can answer that question. What kind of God would demand this? The same kind of God that would do exactly that with his son for every person in this room. But Abraham and Isaac aren't New Testament Christians. They don't understand all of the different pieces. Let's keep going. God demands compliance. Psalm 119 verse 4 says, You've laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Not partially obeyed. Not somewhat suggested. You know, they're commandments, not suggestions. So you look at that verse. You've laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Here's my translation. God basically says this. Here's the book. I'm God you're not. So this is how this is going to go down. That's a harsh demand because I look at some of the precepts of scripture and I begin to ask myself a series of questions. What about the ones that make me uncomfortable? What about the ones that actually impinge on my freedom? What about the ones that my modern culture says are obsolete and don't apply anymore? Then what do I do with them? Here's another one. God demands a yard sale. Matthew chapter 19 says, a rich young guy shows up in front of Jesus with a question. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And what's the answer of God? Yard sale. Take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor. And we sit there as pre-processed American Christians and we shake our head and go, yes, that's awesome. Until God asks you to do the same thing. It's cool when he asks somebody else to do that, but when he asks us, it's like, whoa, 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 that, that's my stuff. I've worked hard to compile my stuff. That's a really big pile of stuff. If I sold all of that, and I, whoa, whoa, that's a little harsh there, Jesus. Back off, right? Let's keep going. God demands a career change. Matthew chapter 4 says, Jesus shows up in the lives of a group of men who are fishing. That's their career. And Jesus shows up and says, I want you to not fish for fish anymore. I'm going to turn you into fishers of men. I want you to follow me. Leave your nets and follow me. 
He shows up in a tax collector's world. You're no longer going to collect taxes. Instead, you're going to give up all of that and follow me. He says the same thing to a, law, to a doctor. He says the same thing to a lawyer as he gathers this group of men called the disciples. And I want you to think about that because we go, well, of course we'd follow Jesus. Think about what he's actually asking. He's saying, I want you to leave everything that brings you and your family security, put your complete trust in me, and then demonstrate your trust by actually walking away. You're going to leave the nets, leave the law practice, leave the doctor's office, and you're going to come follow me as I walk around the countryside and reveal to you the plan of salvation for all of mankind. And we go, oh, absolutely. Until God has the audacity to get in our face and say, actually, I want you to walk away. Here's another scary story. When God demands truth. It's not the kind of story that you preach often because it kind of makes everybody go like, what? Acts chapter 5, a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, sell a piece of land and bring the proceeds to the disciples, the same guys that God called for a complete vocational career change. They bring this and then they lie to the disciples and lie to God about the percentage that they kept for themselves. And at the end of the story, they end up dead. And the next week, offerings went way up in that particular church, right? <laughs> Everybody just freaked out, right? God demands truth. So we have to start asking the question, why is God so demanding? He thinks he can actually ask for my wife and my children and my obedience and my stuff and my future and my security. How can he demand my soul, my life, my all? Those sound like good song lyrics, don't they? We sing them around here all the time. This is where it gets tough. After the last service, somebody came up to me and said, Grant, this is like an anti-membership campaign going on this morning. It's like drawing a line in the sand. Or maybe we need to hear more about what it really costs to follow Jesus. See, this is where it gets tough. When my kids were smaller as their dad, I was very demanding of them. I demanded that the Fishbook children never play on Interstate 5 in Whatcom County. I demanded they were not allowed to be anywhere near a freeway when they were riding their small little bicycles and tricycles. I demanded that of them. It was a non-negotiable in my house. I was unreasonably demanding that they would eat good food and have a rest in the afternoon when they were tiny. Okay? I don't make my 20 and 18-year-old have a nap now. Don't get that. Okay, that's weird. All right? But I would be unreasonably demanding of them. Even if the vegetables caused World War III at our kitchen table, Laurel and I drew a line. It's just like, no, you're going to learn to appreciate these things because they are good for you. I demanded, just like some of you as parents are going to be doing in the next week, I demanded my children go to school, that they learn. Did you, if you made it through the summer, God bless you, parents. One more time, right? Send them back, right? Okay. I was demanding of them. I was demanding of our children that they respect their mom because I knew it would not go well for them if they did not. That's how it worked, all right? I was demanding. Some would say I was too demanding. Some would argue that the way you're supposed to parent is just to let the little narcissistic savages do whatever it is that, <laughs> that their hearts desire. And I would say this to you. If that's your parenting philosophy, can I buy a ticket and watch? Because I want to see how that works for you and for them, all right? 
The bottom line is this. I believe that the motivation behind my demands as a dad, I think they line up perfectly with God's motivation for his demands. Let's answer the question. What is the motivation behind God's demands? And the answer is simple. It's my good. It's the motivation. It's my good. Listen to Psalm 25 verse 10. All the ways of the Lord are faithful and loving for those who keep the demands of His covenant. It's good for me when I obey the demands of God's covenant because His motivation is both loving and faithful. So if my ultimate good is the motivator for His demands, let's get practical, let's get down to it. Everything I've said so far is introduction. Looking at the clock, we're going to make it, okay? But let's dive right in. So the Bible says this, God demands your loyalty as a follower of Jesus. He demands your allegiance. He demands your full attention. Could it be that God demands that, we call it worship, could it be that God demands worship not because it's good for Him or because He needs it, but simply because it's good for me? I mean, think about it. I put it in your outline this way. God demands my loyalty because he knows that any other allegiance results in idolatry. That's where it goes. Listen to his words in Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. If you need a good teaching on that little phrase, go back to Pastor Fred Hartsook's message from about a month and a half ago. He nailed it with that verse. Punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Here's what God is saying. God knows something about Grant Fishbook. He knows that I am naturally prone to create substitutes for him. I'm naturally wired to fill my life with idols and placebos. He knows that I just create substitutes for God without even having to think about it. I create my own shrines with my checkbook, with my calendar. Believe me, I've said this before. I'm going to say it again. If you want to identify the idols in your life, look at your checkbook and your calendar, and they will completely reveal what you really worship. That's tough talk, isn't it? You know, we say it, right? I love God more than anything. But does the reality of my life actually lead us to the same conclusion? Could it be that God demands my worship because he knows if he doesn't receive my worship, ultimately I'm going to end up worshiping myself. And that's not good for me. God knows that's not good for you, Grant. When you are the center of your own universe, that's not good for you. That turns you into that narcissistic little savage that thinks they can do whatever it is that they just jolly well want to do. When God demands my loyalty, He's protecting me from me. Anybody else ever figured out that we just create idols? We just create them. And we take a knee and we end up in that place in our life where we end up hating something that we created as a substitute of God instead of worshiping the God who created everything in the first place. Let's do another one. God demands my purity because he knows that any other choice results in shame. That amazing opportunity last three weeks or so to talk to a group of young people 
who've actually been studying in our area. They're doing some master's degree research on how the erosion of morality in North America is taking out the, the groundwork or the foundation of the nuclear family in the United States. They were very clear the first time I met them at a local coffee shop that they think I'm nuts because I believe in God's plan for sexuality and marriage. I just believe that because that's what my Bible says. It's not popular, but that's what I believe. And we got right down to it. Finally, they just said, so, so like, what's your payoff for doing this God's way? It seems so ridiculous that you would follow this old-fashioned, old-school old ideology, closed-minded, all the rest of it. And I began to resent the fact they used the word old a lot, okay? Because I don't feel old, all right? So we had one of those, can we agree moments. Remember that from a couple weeks ago? Can we agree that there's an unbelievable amount of freedom that comes when you enter into a covenant relationship with another human being and then you add the fact that God's a part of that covenant too? Can we agree that there's a beauty in as two people move together towards each other, that if God's involved in the relationship, that they're actually moving towards God and that there's a deeper abiding intimacy that just comes with every single passing day? Can we agree that that there's a joy that comes with being fully accepted by a person who's as committed to the relationship as you are? A person that actually doesn't just take something from you and then walk away to figure out where they're going to find their next human fix, but instead they actually stay committed inside of the relationship because they love you, because they care for you, because they actually cherish you as a human being. I said, can we agree that there's a freedom about not having to worry about disease coming from the outside and infiltrating the relationship? Can we agree that it's cool to be in a relationship where you're not worried about anybody else's outside influences, trying to come in and take territory that only God can have? I said, can we agree that there's an unbelievable joy that comes when you experience a relationship that God sanctions and encourages and says, no, I want you to be able to enjoy this in the right context. I finished my little rant as I was talking to them with these words. I said, you know, when you've tasted of the good and beautiful aspects of God's plan, married, committed, sexuality, I said, I'll tell you something. When you've tasted of that, God's demands are not off-putting at all. Because they kept bringing up 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I said, you know, when I read those words, that's not a punishment. That's a gift. You know what 1 Corinthians 6 says? Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who you received from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. I said, I look at that and I I say, you know, when when you're just simply trying to do God's things, God's way, that's not a demanding punishment. That's a divine protection. That's a gift from a loving father to a child saying, if you don't want to have to deal with all of the shame that comes from the choices, the difficult choices of living in our modern world, in our modern context, if you do it my way, here's the protection. That's love, right? Let's do one more. God demands my righteousness, which is a fancy word for right living, because he knows the rich reward of obedience. 
Here's a good verse. If you're an Awana kid, you probably learned this in the first couple of weeks. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you or demand of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's break that down just a little bit. Act justly. So I had to make a a series of very difficult leadership decisions over the last couple of weeks. And I was amazed how the grid in my brain helped me decide what I was going to do. Because as I looked at the decisions I needed to make, I think I defaulted to the human side pretty quick. I think we all do, right? These were my questions. What's the easiest way to do this? Like, how can I get this done? What's the most convenient way to do this? What's going to take the least amount of time? What's going to take the least amount of energy? How is this decision going to work for me? I think we all ask those questions, right? Because we tend to be kind of in-focused. So I'm trying to make leadership decisions, godly decisions, and I'm putting them through the grid of what works best for me. I got to the end of my list, kind of squeezed them all a little bit, and you know what dropped out the bottom? One more question. What's the right thing to do? What's the good, godly, right, just decision to make? And I realized, once again, you should have flipped the whole thing over. Should have started with the question, what is the good, godly, right, just course of action to take? Let's apply, apply it to real life. My boss wants to pay me under the table for a little bit of side work. It's not just. I have an opportunity to rip somebody on Facebook because I got fingers, a brain, and a keyboard. It's not just. I can, I'm just going to go out and stir up some controversy in my workplace. I'm going to whisper over here, whisper over here, whisper over here. Forget the gossip word. It's not gossip. I'm just sharing information. not just. I see someone being treated in an unjust human manner, and I make the decision, should I get involved? You should if it's the just, right, good, and godly thing to do. See how easy it is to get the thing all flipped over? And this is what God tells everybody. You call yourself a follower of Jesus, this is my expectation, this is my demand, that you'll act justly. That you'll decide every day to do the good, right, godly thing to do. The Bible also says God demands that we love mercy. That means we don't just tolerate mercy over here on the side, or that we consider whether or not we'll actually be merciful. No, God actually demands that we love mercy, that we embrace it that we forgive as we've been forgiven, that we extend to someone else the very gift that God has offered to us. And then he ultimately wraps it up with these words. And then I, I demand this of you, that you walk humbly with your God. You know, the truth is that's the reward. To walk hand in hand with the same God who actually chose while he was here to act justly and love mercy and walk in humility. It's a picture of Jesus again. So that's the picture that God desires as he lovingly demands of his children. Now, people see that and they react against it, right? And they, they, they fall into a false narrative that basically says this, God is too demanding and he's never satisfied. Maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've felt that before. 
God's just too demanding. He keeps layering this stuff on top of my life, and I can't handle it because it's just plain too hard. I've quoted as part of this series the famous atheist Christopher Hitchens many times in this series. He wrote a book called God is Not Great, and he comments on this false narrative by saying that Christians make a lot of claims when it comes to the demands of God. And in one of his chapters, he says this. Okay, I'm going to read it to you, and I quote, listen very carefully. It's not just to know that God exists and that he created and supervised the whole enterprise, but also to know what he demands of us, from our diet to our observances to our sexual morality. In other words, in a vast and complicated discussion where we know more and more about less and less, yet still hope for some enlightenment as we proceed, one faction, okay, that would be referring to us, one faction, itself composed of mutually warring factions, has the sheer arrogance to tell us that we already have all of the essential information we need. He goes on and says, such stupidity combined with such pride should be enough on its own to exclude belief from the debate. The person who is certain and claims divine warrant for his certainty belongs now to the infancy of our species. Christopher Hitchens is saying that if you believe the way I believe, you're an adult baby who needs to have his diaper changed because you just don't know any better. That would be somewhat offensive, but actually to me, that's a compliment. I like that he uses the word infancy because Jesus said, if you're actually going to figure this Christian thing out, you're going to need to have faith like a child. Not childish, childlike. Maybe it would actually take a childlike perspective to simply see the true narrative of Scripture. If you don't get anything else this weekend, please take this with you. Jesus demands nothing of us that was not demanded of Him. Let me say that again. Jesus demands nothing of us that was not demanded of Him. Can I get an amen? That's a powerful statement. Jesus pursued loyalty. Loyalty to the mission of God to save our souls. Jesus pursued purity so that he could restore our lost purity. Jesus willingly became a sacrifice, gave his life as a ransom for many and embraced justice and mercy and humility, all of which he lived out when he would then turn around and lovingly demand from us our life, our soul, our all. What kind of a man can demand that I lay my life down? Only the kind of man that went first. Only the kind of man that said, watch this. You want to know how to surrender? Watch me, because that's exactly what I'm going to do. 2 Corinthians 4.10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. This is not for the faint-hearted. This is not for those who've embraced easy believism. You're kind of doing, you know, you, you got a relationship with Jesus on the side. You pretty much do whatever you want to all the rest of the time. And you've never fully considered the fact God is unbelievably demanding. 
what makes this beautiful is that he demanded all of this of his son first. And then says, hey, follow him. Take a knee. Crawl up on the altar yourself. Forget your checkbook and your calendar. Worship God because ultimately his motivation is for your good. This is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't just want us to have the best life in eternity. He actually wants us to participate in the best life we can have right now. And it comes when we obey God's demands. So I made a promise at the beginning of the series. Every single week we were going to let God speak for himself. So I'm going to quote Almighty God right now from the book of Ezekiel chapter 18. Because he actually shares how he feels towards people who are struggling in the tension of whether or not they should actually comply with God's demands or not. He actually talks to people who just say, you know, what if I get caught in that thing between my culture, what my culture says, and what God actually asked me to do? And what if they're not the same? And what if I actually get ostracized or pushed out because I'm actually willing to take God at his word, even when it's unpopular? What if I got all this stuff stored up inside of me and I've got this ugly past? What do I do if I actually comply with God's demands to give him my soul, my life, my all? What do I do with that? Here's God's commentary on all of us. But if a wicked person turns away from all the sins they've committed and keeps all of my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live and not die. None of the offenses they've committed will ever be remembered against them. Then God asks the question, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? He says, rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their wicked way and choose to live? Here's what God is saying. In order to live, you have to meet God's demands to die to yourself. And that is not easy. Because there's something inside of us that just naturally pushes back against the guy in the red vest, right? You can't make me. To which God says, it's true. I won't make you. But I'll invite you. I'll invite you to drag all of your idols and all of your history. You pile it up at the foot of this cross, this Roman torture stick. I'll invite you to bring all of that garbage here and to surrender it and die to yourself. And the second you do that, this is my response. It's not judgment. It's not hate. I'll give you back life more abundantly than you can even fathom. I will demand that of you. I will demand your garbage of you so that in return, I can give you life, not just in eternity, but right this second. Is God demanding? Oh, you bet he is. Why? Because he actually loves every single human being in this room. Some people would call him crazy for doing that. I'd call him savior. I'd call him king. 
I would call him hope. I'd call him forgiveness because that's exactly who God is. Let's pray this morning. God, I pray for any person in this room who's never surrendered all. And I pray right now that they would do exactly that. Surrender all, repent of all, confess all, die to all so that they may have life and have it more abundantly. God, I pray for those of us who who struggle with your demands, the ones we don't understand, the one that seems to impinge on our freedom. God, may we see your heart behind the demand. May we see the loving faithfulness that's for our good. Lord Jesus, you are demanding, but you never demanded anything of us that you did not already comply to yourself. So we thank you for dying. We thank you for submitting. We thank you for taking our sin on your spotless soul so that we could be forgiven and set free. God, I pray that each of us today would truly weigh in our heart. What are we going to do with a God that demands? And I pray that we would surrender our life, our soul, and our all to the praise of His glorious grace. Lord, thank you everything that you've done everything you've taught us over the last six months God we acknowledge we've not even scratched the surface of who you are so Lord this fall push us deeper take us deeper God take us further out on the water away from the boat away from logic a logic that would say just stay safe God lead us to a place that's downright scary knowing that you'll meet us there. Give us more than we could ask or even imagine. Lord, I thank you for this time together this morning. Thank you that you are demanding. May our lives be fully compliant with your perfect will. And all God's people agreed together and said, So after every service this weekend, there's just been tension. It's good. If you need to pray with somebody, maybe you're angry from what you've heard. Maybe you're ticked. Good. (laughs) Maybe you need to struggle with the fact that that you haven't complied with God's demands and you, you call yourself a follower of Jesus. I'll tell you something. A group of people called the After Service Prayer Team come stand up here every single week. And if you need to pray about anything, you need somebody to struggle with in a conversation, they would love nothing more than to spend some time doing that. If you don't know Jesus, they would love nothing more than to introduce you to him. He is demanding. He's God. May we as a church fully surrender to the God who is now and all the way through the fall. So you guys come to the last service. We're almost out of time, but there's a whole bunch of college students that are here this morning. You guys are getting ready in the next couple of weeks to, to spread your wings and move all over the country. 
God demands something of you as you go. Shine your light where he puts you. Be different. Live different. Shine your light into a dark world. In this much darkness, a little bit of light goes an awfully long way. Amen? And know that we love you and we bless you and we'll be praying for you and that you'll always have a home here when you come back. To the parents who are releasing your kids to school, (laughs) you made it. That's good, all right? But as you send them this week, bless them. Pray that they would shine their light. I don't care if they're three or 18. Send them out into the world and let their light so shine before men that people will see their good deeds and glorify God who is in heaven. Send out missionaries, not kids. That's what God has called us to. That's what God demands. We're going to have an amazing fall here at Christ the King. I'm not going to give you the rah-rah, yeah, this is just going to be awesome talk. I'm going to tell you this. I truly believe we are being absolutely obedient to what God has called us to preach and teach this fall at Christ the King Church. And that scares me and thrills me at exactly the same time. We're going to do what God's asked us to do. For September, pushing all the services on Sunday morning back in half an hour. In October, I have no idea. Let's just be ready, okay? No guarantees. Let's hold life like this and see whether or not God doesn't actually demand our life, our soul, our all. We're going to bring the service to conclusion by giving back to God our tithes and our offerings. If you're visiting with us today, we don't want anything from you. Thanks for coming. Your gift to us is the fact you showed up this weekend, and I hope you'll come back and see us again. The ushers are going to start in the back, work their way towards the front. When the offering passes you by, we're going to stand, and we're going to sing with John Michael and the team. And we're going to give glory to the God who is... May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. And may he give you unbelievable peace. Because he is God. Bless you guys.